It's news from heaven. How ancient people talked to angels. You ever feel like an ancient person? Yeah. If I worked out yesterday, you could just be fine the next day. It hurts. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that kind of ancient. I'm talking about how did the earliest people back in this, we all have this instinctual belief. No, we don't. Do we? I thought we would. I felt like we do. This inst- well, check with yourself. This instinctual belief that at one point things were how they should be. That there was an idyllic, satisfying, like this is what life should be like early period for the human race. Do you? I, I just when you think back, like, oh yeah, the people that really lived in harmony with nature and everything was good, right? Well, according to Swedenborg, one slice of why we actually did have this all is right with the world beginning is because we used to be able to just chat it up with angels. None of this, let's get on to video stuff on the internet or pour through books and try to figure out, is our angels real? And like, hey, are you there? I could really use some help. No, not right now. Come on. None of that. It was like, like you talk to a friend, you talk to an angel. How? How? If it happened, there has to be a how. Everything in the physical world, everything that we discover operates by systems. How did people used to talk? Were angels just friendlier back then? Were they louder back then? Okay, I've done enough damage with this introduction already. The point is not, is is really good though. The point is, look, I would love to, instead of talking to my head weather, instead of just hearing what kind of negativity my thoughts want to bring up today and how they want to get me to focus on when there's like four or five really good things happening, but there's one bad thing that happened a week ago, and these things are like, hey, let's talk about this. Let's pull this into the front of your consciousness and just keep reminding you about it. Rather than do that, rather than spend my time giving energy to that, I want to talk to angels. I, I want to hear what's really going on. I want to. I want to. I want the uh, chat with God. I want to see those three dots. Like God is about to send me a message. Angels are about to talk to me. How do you do it? Let's check it out. This is from Swedenborg's Sacred Scripture number twenty-one. Lucky twenty-one. I have been taught that the people of the earliest church, the one that existed before the flood were so heavenly in nature that they talked with angels of heaven and that they were able to talk with them in correspondences. Okay, see ya. We got our answer there? If you're new to Swedenborg, and even if you're not, we have to have this conversation because there's a couple of key terms here that you got to know correspondences are everything. Like why that why would this this is great. This is a great little setup here. What you're saying that the key to talking with angels is correspondences. Whatever that is. That's how you talk with angels. That's how we get out of this misery here and get connected to joy and happiness. Okay. Come on. What is it? Would you say correspondences? What's so important about this? Well, this correspondence you need correspondences to understand this sentence. Okay? In one way, and this is like sort of fudging on the edge of is this a correspondence, but he, church, he's not talking about religious institution. The church is something inside of you. You can become a church if love and truth guide, if you are driven by love and truth. That is what a church is. 
But then he's talking about the flood. You know, there's this biblical story of uh, the the rain is coming down. There's an ark which is hanging out, and right Noah's in there, and he's doing good, but the rest of the world is just getting washed away. That story can't the, very dubious that that could have happened literally. I mean, you the, the gravity of the earth, the, the, where would all that water come from? So on and so on. The gravity of Earth. I heard once that if it, the Earth was fully covered in water, it would be thrown out of its orbit or something. It's just very difficult to imagine that. But what's he talking about here? The flood. As you know, you're trying to build this church inside of you. There are whole parts of you, pictured by these clouds here, where right, I was just getting that, that are not in the church. That is not interested in you being happy. Interested in you finding misery that we call the the misery that we call hell in life right so the flood is this deluge of evil and falsity that try to drown us this very thing that we were just talking about and then everything that gets wiped out here is just the parts of us that are too enmeshed in that those parts cannot be leading they cannot be the ones in the ark there's a little bit of you that is got this love and truth in it and it survives floating on these ideas that go with it. Again, that's how you get that out of this story is from the idea, the language of correspondences. This flood story is written in the language of correspondences. Myth, symbolism, everything that the earliest religious people had is written in the language of correspondences. This is all through religious history. And that language that we need to even get a sentence into this spiritual material is how people talked with angels. And beyond that, this is how we can see God and divine reality and everything we're trying to get at through text here, dubious text here. We can begin to see that in everything that we look at, that once you know what to look for, everything in existence is singing this out. This is how it is. Well, that's the promise, anyway. Let's see. Let's see if we can get there. This meant that their wisdom developed to the point that when they saw any... Hello. When they saw anything on earth, they not only thought of it in, in earthly terms, but thought of it in spiritual terms at the same time, and therefore their thoughts joined those of angels. I feel a great burden knowing that I need to diagram this. And you may be saying, just keep reading, but but come on, let's ponder this for a second here. Means and mechanisms. We're, th we're here on the earth, and so we look at what's going on around us, and maybe we see a little building, and maybe we see a little tree, and whatever else we see. And we think about that stuff, and we think about our earthly lives, and we think about, this is why it's, it's you know so easy to wonder, is there even anything beyond the physical? Because we see the physical, we see how the physical works. It it makes up the matrix in which we think and process things. And if that's what's in our minds, the spiritual world is the world inside of us, right? The, the thoughts and feelings. So if that, if our thoughts and feelings are occupied only by this plane, the angels have their own thoughts and feelings. Because they are looking at a world as well. And their world has, sure, it's got houses and trees and things, but they co only correspond. They're not the same. Because here, an object can be devoid of meaning. You can have a great, strong-looking castle, 
the people that inhabit it are not virtuous and not strong. You can have a very beautiful looking scene, you know, landscape in which there are mean people living. They don't, they, there's no connection between the psychology of the people inhabiting it and the, it just doesn't matter. You can't tell by looking at, the, don't judge a book by its cover. In the spiritual world, judge a book by its cover. There, everything is alive and actually representation of the psychological states in there. So if you see a beautiful tree, it's because there's an understanding in an angel's mind of how goodness and truth actually work in a first-hand way, in like a real tangible way. All that is to say, angels are filled with that kind of stuff. That's what they're thinking about. That's what they're feeling about, these forms of goodness and truth. If we are not thinking about that same stuff in the spiritual world, there's a universal law, thought brings presence. We cannot, we have nothing that magnetizes us to them. But if when we see these external things, like water, like the flood, and we are thinking, yeah, sure, there's a river I've got to cross, but that river is also a picture of how, of all kinds of things. In a positive sense, it's of how the truth, water is truth, so the truth comes in and lets uh, all life happen so that we, we drink in the truth from God. Our spirits need it like the body needs water, or in the negative sense, the deluge of evil and falsity that can sweep you away. Thinking of that stuff, as you navigate the physical river, you're thinking, oh, this is teaching me about something much more important and much deeper and much more permanent than the crossing of this river here. It's the, our interaction in per- perpetual eternity with truth and falsity. If you're, getting, if you're thinking of that when you're going through the physical thing, you have something in, to chat. You have an icebreaker with the angels. You have something you're focusing on the same thing as them. And that joins your thoughts to heaven. And that's how this communication can happen. I've also been taught that Enoch, and we t- we're talking about Enoch. What's Enoch? It's just like the flood is something. What's Enoch? We were talking about that this week, mentioned in Genesis. And others who joined him collected correspondences from the mouth of these sages and passed their knowledge on to their descendants. So an oral tradition where people know and do you look and see that in cultures around the world? People have this reverence for nature and this complex mythology around it. And you can say with your uh, 21st century mind, well, that's silly that they have that. But are they understanding actually the fundamental point of why everything is around us? And it's not that it's literally, they think, a turtle carried the world on its back, but that they understand that that's a symbol for something that is actually more true than E equals MC squared because it has greater ramifications for what our existence is. Right. I was asking that as a question, as a rhetorical. As a result of this, the knowledge of correspondences was not only familiar, but was devoted to, devotedly practiced in many Middle Eastern countries, especially in the land of Canaan, Egypt, Assyria, Chaldea, Syria, Arabia, and entire Sidon and Nineveh. From coastal locations, it was transmitted to Greece. There, however, the knowledge was changed into fables, as we can tell from the writings of the earliest people there. We're also, maybe more often known as myths, Greek mythology. This is talking about the distribution of religious ideas and that there, there is a common tree. That you sort of think you look out into the world and think, well, this group has their their mythology, this group has their mythology, their religious practice, and these are just these isolated things that popped up without relation to each other. What Swedenborg is describing here is that you had this great deep truth that the human race once knew. It fractured 
but spread its knowledge into all these other cultures that that succeeded it in time drew the the core of their beliefs from this ancient knowledge now there was a sort of a loss of what that meant well that's what we're about to talk about let's talk about it with the passage of time though so does make it clear that things like Zeus and Pegasus, these are coming out of this original knowledge. Changed, but, but inspired by that. With the passage of time, though, the symbolic practices of the church, which were correspondences, were turned into idolatrous practices and even into magic, or the abuse of correspondences to harm people. Idolatrous practices. So, these symbols that were originally all good, became a problem. When this happened, the Lord's divine providence saw to it that this knowledge was gradually erased. And among the people of Israel and Judah, it became utterly lost and extinct. So by the time we join the biblical narrative, we don't have, we don't have this knowledge anymore. But it survives in something that was very sacred to those people we were just talking about. The worship of these people, though, was still composed entirely of correspondences. So it represented heavenly realities, even though they did not know what they meant. Just like us, if, you're, if you've spent any time in the Bible and you're going through and it's like, wow, this is a lot of time devoted to describing the tabernacle. And why do we need to know about every little bit of the construction of it and the materials of it? Yeah, why? Because it is holding a secret, even if we don't get it. It's there. And this is going throughout the entirety of this, the biblical arc, is that this stuff, the worship, the rituals, why do we have to hear about so many sacrifices and things? Because these, even though we don't understand them anymore, they are the, 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 the arc that is preserving this great knowledge. Because they, they are done in accordance with this very specific science that, that we don't understand anymore, we just know how to do it. They were in fact completely earthly people and therefore neither wanted to know nor could know anything about spiritual things or consequently about correspondences. So the human race doesn't care like we used to. But yet, we still can get, okay, you're supposed to do something like this. So we did what we're supposed to do. The idolatrous practices of peoples in ancient times arose from their knowledge of correspondences because everything we see on our planet corresponds to something spiritual. Not only trees, but also all kinds of animals and birds as well as fish and so on. Why do you love that stuff? Why is that stuff so healing and so inspiring? All this nature. It's cool and it's life. It's everything we know it is. But also because it tells you, it's, it's a picture, a living a living reflection of the spirit. The ancients who were devoted to a knowledge of these correspondences made themselves images that correspond to heavenly realities. And they took pleasure in them because they signified what is happening in heaven and the church. That's why they placed them not only in their temples, but in their homes as well. Not to be worshipped, but to remind them of the heavenly realities signified by these objects. So it start, it's great, yeah. Some people will be like, well, you can't have any graven image. It's great if, if, a, if a little statue of a bird is making you, is like speaking to you, then do it. That's great. But, but, uh, there's an issue when we worship anything except love. Anything non-living. 
And this is where we're, we're starting to get to. So in Egypt and elsewhere, their images looked like calves, oxen, snakes, as well as children, old people, and young women. This is because calves and oxen mean the feelings and drives of the earthly self. Snakes, the shrewdness of the sensory self. Children, innocence and caring. Old people, wisdom. And young women, the desire for what is true. And so on. All that stuff is part of you. This is, talk about we're being interconnected. And not only, you know, are there ungulates of all kinds, but they're actually, they're a picture of what goes on inside of us and vice versa. Snakes are like the shrewdness, but in a positive and negative sense of, of our outer sensory self, the self I was describing before here. Where is it? Wow, we've been a long way. This thing here. This is nature is a portrait of us, and inside us is a portrait of nature. It's because it's all connected. Because the ancients had placed these images and statues in and around temples, their descendants, after the knowledge of these correspondences had been lost, began to worship the images and statues themselves as sacred, and eventually regarded them as demigods. You're fracturing what's supposed to be whole. Much the same happened in other nations with the Philistines Dagon and Ashdod, for example. See Samuel. The upper part of Dagon looked like a human, and the lower part looked like a fish. An image devised because a human means intelligence, and a fish means knowledge, and intelligence and knowledge become one. I like that, because even though the Philistines... And the Israelites are always clashing. They don't get along well. And you could read the biblical story as saying, well, you had the Israelites and they had the true worship. And then there's all these other countries where they're just, they're just totally made up false gods that just had to be smashed. But Dagon, originally, you know, any, anything that you worship... You know, and it's not even really like, oh, what do you pray to? I mean, the core of it is like, you know, uh, what's your society like? What's your civilization like? Are you loving the neighbor? Are you, or are you operating from the love of dominion, hatred, and all this stuff? So as you lose things being a symbol of looking to love and truth in God, you just, the love of self and love of the world takes over when you're just, so... It had gotten bad, but the idea that actually the design of this guy, Dagon, is something really good. Because it's about intelligence and knowledge becoming one. That the stuff you know serves an actual acknowledgement of, of what's right and true. It's cool. It's just, it, I just love the idea that all, all these different threads of human religiosity are initially came from the same truth. This is also why the ancients' worship was in gardens and groves, depending on the species of trees and on mountains and hills. Gardens and groves meant wisdom and intelligence, and each tree meant some specific aspect of them. Olive trees, for example, meant good actions done out of love. Because it feeds you. Go eat an olive, or have olive oil, and just feel that, like, this, this is doing to my body what love does to the spirit. And then you'll be doing it. You'll be setting yourself up to communicate with the angels. Grapevines meant true insights that arise from doing good. Cedars meant a rational understanding of what is good and true. Go smell, a, go smell something cedar smell flavored. And understand, you can hear the words good and true. Ah, you know. 
what's good and true. I don't know what that is, but smell the cedar and understand like that hit that comes with it. Whoa, that is something. What is the meaning in that? It's it's a picture. It's a, an impression on you of the nature of what goodness and truth is. Mountains meant the highest heaven and hills meant the heaven below it. And you think of what a mountain and a hill invokes in you. It's out there. Get Shut this video off. You don't need it. All this truth is sitting out there in everything that's beautiful and good. And us regaining that knowledge, being able to look out and see this love and truth and everything that touches us is what's going to free us from this negative false interpretation of everything. We're even going to get to love dark clouds and because and, you understand what they teach you. And uh, we're going to connect up to, to heaven. And then we'll all be talking to the angels and maybe eventually, overtly, just chat it up like they used to and get life back to where it was uh, supposed to be, the satisfying condition of a happy human race that where the physical and spiritual are one thing and it's just joy and just possibility. That's the news from heaven. How'd you like it? Leave us a comment, like and subscribe, donate. We're not for profit. You think we can just do this? We have to do it with money. You got to donate money to us. Thank you. Uh, go off, off to lefteye.com slash donate. I hope you take this out into your week and it does something good for you. Come back. Let us know. Looking forward to seeing you next time.